The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. John 16, verse 23, through the end of the chapter. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech, and the Hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father." His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Oh, do you now believe? Well, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it is come that you will be scattered each to his own home and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the word of our Savior and of our God. I'm asking you to suppose something imaginary this morning. Imagine that you, unlike myself, like the sport of golf. I don't say I dislike it. I just have no relationship to it. But let us suppose even I aspire to be a golfer and sign up. I have never played 18 holes of golf in my whole life. Let's say I sign up for an amateur tournament, and uh, I realize I may have some difficulty because I can't play golf. So... This is all imaginary. I decide my best friend from Mannheim Township High School, class of 88, Jim Furyk, is going to help me out. Many of you know the name of Jim Furyk, one of the most well-known professional athletes to come from our area. We're still imagining that Jim takes me out on the golf course and the very same course that I'm going to be playing in this amateur tournament. And he says, now look, Michael, I can... I can help you. Just take some notes of everything I do, observe every single move I make and how I swing the club and what club I use and everything else, and I'll give you some commentary, and you get this all down. Just follow me and pay attention. So I watch Jim play 18 holes of golf, and he does so very, very well and ends up seven under par at the end of 
the 18 holes, and then this former U.S. Open champion turns to me and says, now, you see, friend, if you just do everything exactly the way I did it on this course, you too can play seven under par, and you will win the tournament. I'm confident of you. Should I share his confidence? Did Jim Furyk make a prediction that I can fully expect to come true? Well, I'm going to drop that for a minute and come back to it because you'll see later on how that's relevant to our Bible text for today. Let me hold you in suspense for a little while. Today we explore this last segment in the farewell discourse of Jesus, John 14 through 16. As I said, chapter 17 brings us to a prayer. It's a new division. We'll spend about four or five weeks looking at that prayer, I hope. But having read the end of chapter 16, we've come to a conclusion of this farewell, and and there is real unity to it. It it really is a wrap-up to what Jesus has been saying for three chapters here, even though the subjects seem to have moved to different things, and maybe you could miss the thread. And I'm interested in you having that thread, so I'm going to try once more to, to just give a very short, concise summary of what these three chapters have had to say. It started with Jesus saying, let not your hearts be troubled, and they were troubled because the 11 disciples pictured him departing, leaving them. And that was very distressing. They didn't understand where he was going or what that was all about. But he started saying that his destination was his father's house, that he was going to his father's house to prepare it and that they would be received there by him and that he was the way to go there. And then in that end of that chapter 14, he promised something they hadn't learned much about up till then, the fact that the unseen but very real Holy Spirit would come and would be present with them when Jesus was physically absent, as if he was the identical companion sent from God to replace Jesus himself. Well, then chapter 15 started out with a comparison, Jesus calling himself the vine and that his disciples were branches, and the point was that they had no life or growth unless they stayed attached to him and got their growth from him. Disciples are physically, spiritually bonded to Christ in a strong way. And yet, while they are his and while they belong to him, nevertheless, they face persecution and hatred, which Jesus faced first, and they face it because of belonging to him. Well, then chapter 16 started out with more about the Holy Spirit and how he would be present and his main activity would be to reveal things, to make clear things about Christ himself. And you could see implied in that that they would actually end up being the vessels once the Spirit had brought things to their remembrance that they would record, and we know they did record, the books of the New Testament, that the Spirit would be like a spotlight shining on Christ. Last time then, here in chapter 16, we saw this middle section where Jesus said there'll be times in your life, a little while, he called it, and and he wasn't specifying how many days or months or centuries, but there'd be times of a little while when Jesus would seem absent, but then he would come. Whether that was the time while he was in the grave or whether it was the centuries in which we still await now his final return. 
The point was, he would return to his people. I believe we could put a four-word theme uniting these three chapters and see it as a strong cable sort of woven right through these chapters. And that four-word theme would be unbreakable union with Christ. Jesus was preaching here, I can't leave you. Don't be troubled. I'm not really leaving you. I'm certainly not forsaking you. You, once you are joined to me in Christ, bonded to me by a spiritual bond, cannot be separated from me, whether I go into a grave, whether I go in a resurrection body, whether I ascend into heaven, whether I return in glory at the end of the age, I will be with you and I will not leave you. Even if it is his ambassador, the Holy Spirit who is with us, Christ is with us. We are united to him if we know him by faith. He does not intend to leave us as orphans in any way. We cannot lose Christ and he will not lose us unbreakable union with Christ is the theme of this farewell discourse. And it comes all the way down the ages to us today to remind us that we have no valid reason for fear of being left alone or being left defenseless in this world. So now as we close out this passage, I see two main points I want to draw out of it as we conclude with it. And the first one, I would say it this way. Christ is the mediator who bridges between heaven and our world. If you ask where that is, I say it's stated most clearly in verse 28 here, the summary of the first section I'm looking at. A summary statement. Jesus says, I came from the Father, and I have come into the world, and I am now leaving the world and going to the Father. What a concise summary of the whole errand of Jesus into the world. We'll soon be in the Christmas season, the Advent season, when we talk about Advent coming to, Christ coming to our world, the season of his coming. John chapter 1 began right away in this gospel to assert that that's what Jesus did. He began with the Father and came to the world. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And then He came among us in this world but was not recognized. You can hear some of the most absurd commentary about the Bible by people who have gotten all kinds of degrees, but I don't know what they've ever learned. And they're hired especially by places like the History Channel and some other things that purport to tell you things about the Bible. These scholars will uh, be filmed and their names and their degrees will be at the bottom of the screen. And one of the favorite themes that you will find debunking the conservative interpretation of the Word of God these days, and it's been around a very long time, is the idea that Jesus was just this simple rabbi from Galilee who went out teaching, and he never claimed to be the divine Son of God. Now, this is offered quite seriously by people with two or three PhDs. Jesus was a simple rabbi who never claimed to be divine. It was his disciples that foisted that fiction upon him after his death. I just want to tell you, if if they're right about that, then we have been studying a gospel in the Gospel of John, which is written by the world's worst liar. John must be the world's worst liar because he consistently, I haven't begun to count. If I went back, I know it would be dozens of times 
in one way or another, John has asserted either his own observation or the actual quotes from Jesus that Jesus came forth from the Father, that he was God, and came into this world as a man. He has asserted the divinity of Christ over and over and over again, quite often in Jesus' own words. So, uh, History Channel, I guess John is authored by a liar. That's all there is to it. Because it does not tell the story of a simple rabbi who never claimed to be divine. It tells you of one who came forth from the glories of heaven and came into this world and was not recognized for what he was and returned to the glory of his Father, who he's going to pray to in a most amazing way, by the way, in chapter 17. The divine mission of Christ to earth was a mission that was needed. It was needed because God created man in his image. We used as a call to worship this morning Psalm 8, which speaks about us singled out from God's creation, from the fish and the birds and all the great things God created. He singled us out to be vessels who could give him praise, who could know him, who could communicate with him. And so we can. But what did we do with that? We sinned. We turned against him. We rebelled. We trampled on the knowledge of God. We bent it to conform to our knowledge of ourselves and the way we wanted the world to be. And so there was a hopeless chasm split between heaven and earth, between man and God. Jesus came forth from the divine presence of God to be a man of this earth because a bridge was needed. There was a grand canyon across which man could not fellowship with God, could not be forgiven by God. I have not seen the Grand Canyon in person. Even the pictures are enough to to be awesome. I'm sure some of you have stood there. And would you imagine yourself building a bridge across the Grand Canyon? What a ridiculous idea. I don't know how anybody would do it, even with space-age technology. I suppose if you want to spend enough billions, it could be done. But it sure wouldn't be easy. God became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ in order to bridge the impassable canyon between disobedient mankind and holy God. One writer broke it down this way and said, here are four essential Jesus facts you must grasp from Scripture. Number one, the fact that Jesus originally dwelt with God the Father. And again, read the early chapters of John, especially chapter one. Two, that having originally dwelt with the Father, he voluntarily came to earth. Three, that after dying and rising again, he voluntarily left the earth. Four, that he now dwells and rules at God's right hand. This author said these four Jesus facts, he called them, are like four stone walls of a castle that stands stalwart about the truth of Christ and all that he is. And if you would believe those four facts, you have a biblical faith in Jesus Christ. When he confronted, Jesus confronted Martha, his friend, Martha of Bethany. John eleven twenty seven has him ask what she believed about him. And Martha said, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God who should come into the world. She had a pretty good faith. She had at least two of the walls. She didn't have the resurrection part yet. But she believed he was God come into the world. The great scholar of early ages, Augustine, said Christ came into the world in such a way as to never completely leave 
his father, and he returned to the father so as to never really leave the world. That's a good way to say it, a complete errand of Jesus Christ. Now we see here in verse 23 of this passage, and I broke last time at that point because now Jesus is taking a bit of a departure in verse 23 there as he says, in that day you're not going to ask me any more questions. What's that day? Well, we assume he means that the day after he died and rose when all of a sudden things made very different sense to the disciples. And when he walked, for example, on the road to Emmaus and showed them the meaning of scriptures and stayed with them 40 days and so on and interpreted the scripture. In that day, you won't have to pepper me with questions anymore. In fact, in so many words, he was saying, then you'll be able to ask the Father what you want to know. I think this is wonderful here as he talks briefly about prayer in this place because it seems to me he's saying, once I have atoned for your sins on the cross and I have risen from the grave and that gap between you and the Father is healed, look, there's no longer a Grand Canyon you have to shout across and hope God could hear you. Now you'll be fully reconciled and you'll be able to ask the Father what you want to know by praying in my name, he says here. Remember, he said this several times before, these promises about prayer in his name in these chapters. Asking according to who Jesus is, not my selfish ideas, not coming with a demand and saying, God, I want this, do this. Coming and saying, God, I submit myself I would come to you as Jesus the Son has reconciled me to you and know what is it that you want me to seek? What is it that Jesus would ask if he were praying in my place? I would pray according to the character and the mediatorship of Jesus himself. We read in 1 John 2.1 that Jesus is our advocate with the Father. We pray in his name and say, Father, in the name of the one who brought us back together, I come to you and seek that which your own son would desire for me. He has bridged the gap in such a way that we now can talk to God as we never could otherwise. We have this, call it a wireless connection if you want. That's I guess, fits our day and age. We have the greatest wireless connection of all to God our Father who we can come to by faith and seek in Jesus' name that which will cause rejoicing and fulfillment. He says here in verse 24, Before this, you haven't asked God for things in my name. Ask it now, and you'll receive, and your joy will be full. Christ is the mediator who bridges between heaven and our world. Well, the second point here is this then. For verses, uh, not the whole content of 29 to 33, but the main thrust, I think, of that second part. Christ is the victor who defeated all powers of this present world age. You see, knowing that Jesus was a mediator who reattached us, reattached our broken, suffering world to an eternal heaven via his cross, we might think, oh, great, he solved all the problems then. That means there won't be any more suffering. There won't be any more fatal illness or frustration or arthritis, or persecution, or personal uh, failure, or temptation, or tragedy, or broken marriage. I guess all that's gone and done now, right? Well, Jesus didn't say that. 
He's a total realist. He knows we'll still live in this world that is racked and riddled by the effects of sin, not only our personal sin or the sin of somebody in our family, but sins of those that you know, simply work their way through the whole creation and society, the, the drunk driver that you never heard of before on his fourth violation who smashes into your son or your daughter. And you will be subject to these things. Jesus is a realist. He says, you will be affected with tribulation, an all-encompassing word in this present age. I was listening to the car radio just the other day when they were talking about this Category 5 hurricane approaching the coast of Mexico, and I was becoming quite alarmed as they described it. They said, there's never been a storm with winds as high as this, no recorded hurricane. I thought, wow, this one is really going to be horrible. It seems gratefully to have hit a part of Mexico that is not so heavily populated and at least so far, I haven't heard of huge damage reports. But, her, And by the way, I did point out to our music director that the hurricane's name is Patricia. Uh, I wanted to make sure she didn't miss that. 200 mile per hour winds. 200. That's enough to pick your house up and transplant it in Chester County. 200 miles per hour. And I thought as I was actually studying this exact few verses when I was here around the time I was hearing that report. Here's the blast of Satan's opposition in our lives, the rack and ruin that can come to any of us, not even necessarily of our own personal sinfulness, but just the effects of living in this world. This present world order is like being in a small boat in a heaving sea in the midst of that perfect storm movie of a number of years ago when two enormous North Atlantic storms collided and caught some fishermen right in the midst of it. Amazing. Jesus says something strange. You can have peace in all that. You can have peace because there's an eye to that storm, and you can travel with the eye. The eye is called belonging to Christ. Despite predictions of conflict and suffering, we can have confidence as Jesus ends this farewell discourse with a dramatic statement. In me. Don't take that off. Don't read him saying, you may have peace. He says, in me, you may have peace. And only in him. In the world, you will have tribulation, all kinds of trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. You see the wonderful unity of thought going back to the beginning of chapter 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Now he's, that's where he's ending now. Don't be troubled. Don't be upset by the storm that will come. In me, you can have peace. In me, you can expect joy. Why? Because Jesus, the Lord, has conquered the difficulties, the painful experiences, the Lord of evil itself, Satan. He's speaking here before the cross, and he's saying, I have overcome. It's a sure thing. It hasn't happened yet, but I've done it. And you'll see. I will win a great cosmic victory, and it's not merely for my own sake. He said, it's for you if you're 
in me, and I'm in you, and you are the lodging place of God Most High come to earth and by His Spirit dwelling in His people. Jesus overcame every power, every tragic opposition, every persecution. Earlier in chapter 14, verse 30, he said, the ruler of this world has no claim on me. He cannot defeat me. He can try very hard, but he cannot do it. Colossians 2.15 says that on the cross, Jesus, quote, disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them. Did you remember my golf story? I'm ready to come back to it. I began with that story, and you say, what in the world did that have to do with John 16? You must have concluded from my imaginary story that, of course, it would do me or you or anybody else no good to simply trail Jim Furyk around a golf course and take copious notes on everything he did and maybe even take pictures of every swing so that I could go back and study, 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 and then come out and reproduce what he did. Nonsense. I couldn't possibly do it. I have none of his skills. I don't have in my brain what he has in his brain. I don't have the reflexes or the strength or the finely honed, tuned skills of a professional golfer. And mimicking him would be utter futility. Why did I even talk about that? I talked about it because millions of people today think that doing that same thing with Jesus Christ is what Christianity is about. Just follow Jesus around. Take note of what he says and what he does, and then go out and reproduce it. Surely you can do that. Just do what Jesus does. Just strive to live his standard of life. Never mind the absolute frustration that will produce in you because you never, ever, ever will be able to do it. But let me imagine, I'm still in the imaginary realm, if it was somehow possible by a supernatural act that there could be Jim Furyk dust, drop the Jim Furyk dust on my head so that it absorbed its way down into my body, through my brain, into my arms, and with Jim Furyk dust, I'd be transformed, and I could go out and play Jim Furyk golf in the amateur tournament. Might say that, don't be stupid. That's not going to happen. Of course it's not. It's a fiction. But my point is, it is not a fiction. It is not a myth. When I tell you that the Lord from heaven who won history's epic victory, the man Jesus Christ, certainly dwells in me. And he certainly dwells in you if you are in him by faith and transformed into his disciple. And we, as weak human vessels, have a victorious Lord who makes us his habitation. He makes us the suit of clothes that he would wear going out into this world. And he says, what's coming? You're going to go bankrupt? All right. I've overcome that. You're going to have cancer and die from it? All right. I've overcome that. He doesn't save us from trouble and pain. He saves us out of it, in the midst of it. 
And Paul in Philippians 4.13 wrote those familiar words, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. The victory of Christ belongs to his people. Doesn't mean you won't die. Doesn't mean you won't be beheaded by ISIS. But it does mean that the victory of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us is such we cannot by any means of this creation be separated from our eternal souls existing with him and praising him throughout all eternity. The crowning conclusion of Christ's farewell here to his best friends was this phrase, I have overcome this world, this hard world that you are still living in. The one who said that was hours away from death on a cruel, hideous cross. Seemed like the worst defeat physically and spiritually you could imagine. But he was also three days away from a bodily resurrection by the glorious power of God that shook the very foundations of the earth and under the earth and above the earth. Do you really believe Christ is a victor? Will you stand with him resident in your life while the world mocks your gospel? Expect them to mock your gospel. They mocked him. Expect circumstances to press against you. They pressed against him, and he overcame them. Stand with Christ. He's the true king. He's God over all, and his name is blessed forever and ever. Our Father, we here are people who face every kind of opposition. I've named some of those kinds, but there are people here facing things that I know not of, facing obstacles that they say, aha, but mine is an exception. It's so hard. God can't keep me through this. Will you lead your people who live in you and in whom you live by Christ and the Holy Spirit to stand in the victory of Jesus. May we face the world and whatever it brings in that victory. For Jesus' sake, amen.